Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thanks for joining us this week. Marianne's guest is Tyson Lord Gray, who is an attorney, professor, minister, and a pretty great activist for both humans and animals. Yeah, really kind of an amazing interview. And of course, on the Flock bonus segment this week, I'll be continuing my conversation with Tyson Lord Gray. As as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get the link to that bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock yet and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you are a member of the Flock, and thank you if you are, please also join us for our first Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month, you guessed it, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And on these calls, we focus on how to be better activists, how to take care of ourselves and one another. And we always have some really inspiring guests, many of whom are former podcast guests. So if you're a member of the Flock, be sure to check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourheadhouse.org. We've also started one-on-one sessions with me on Zoom for our Flock members. So I always have a few sessions each month. If you're a Flock member, you can sign up for it. If you want to find out how to do that, please email Jen at jen at ourheadhouse.org. I love doing those. It's really fun. You know, First Fridays used to be a Catholic thing. Oh, really? It probably still is a Catholic thing. I'm just not a Catholic that anymore. I don't really remember what they were, but there were always these special, special services on First Fridays. Mm. So, you know, that's kind of the same thing we do. And also, do, don't a lot of towns have something once a month and it's called First yeah, something? Like a little first celebration. Fr- it's usually First Friday. Yeah. They had that when we were, when we were, when we were in Portland for six months, when you were visiting Professor of Animal yeah. Lots at the... Yeah. Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark. They had First Fridays. It was always fun. And it was like a free market. <laughs> so I just remember yeah. like trading things I happened to have on with like, oh, those are cool sunglasses. Let's switch. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Or as yeah. or like maybe for you this this sounds a little like nineteen seventy was. I don't know. <laughs> but that's how I imagine nineteen seventy. Portland is a little bit like the nineteen seventies. Yeah. <laughs> so I am currently sipping on my my drive through Dunkin' Donuts coffee, my oat milk latte. And I was, you know, I was just drinking it. I was thinking, you know, I, I don't like this. Why am I drinking it? But I'm drinking it because it is providing me uh, like a type of jolt, a type of medicine that I need because I, I you know, was driving past. It's like, because you're uh, a drug addict. Because I'm a That's drug addict. That's basically yeah. the, the thing here. Caffeine is a drug and yes. you cannot stay awake without it. Well, that's true. But I also, since we're coming out of COVID times, well, we're, I don't know if that's an accurate way of putting it, but because things are shifting. Everybody yeah. listening to this is now knocking on wood. Right. I'm knocking on it. And if you're on, not, I, please do so. I'm knocking on <laughs> IKEA particle board, which is very close to wood. But I've been sort of treating myself to the coffee at the Dunkin' Donuts drive through for the last, well, however long I've lived here in the Catskills, which is like eight months. Because it's a drive-thru and it's right here and they have oat milk. And so I've been enjoying But your big outing of the day. Yeah. The exciting moment. My big outing. And I have to say, even though I'm so grateful for it, I am over it. I'm really ready to have some good coffee out in the world again. But, you know, that being said, oat milk has come such a long way. And speaking of oat milk, Oatly is definitely having quite a moment. I mean, it has been for a while. One thing I really appreciate about Oatly is that it has this really overt animal rights messaging. When I was living in LA, I would see these billboards all over the place on buses and on benches with like very strong animal rights messaging. That is cool. So I'm thrilled that Oatly has now gone public. And it actually had uh, a giant start. It had an initial public offering raising $1.4 billion. Its share prices spiked by 30% on its first day, which is phenomenal. And it, it is actually just as phenomenal as the as the recent successes that this company has seen, it made approximately $421 million in 2020, which is more than double what it got the year before. And it recently, just uh, last year, got $200 million investment from a group of investors, 
which included Oprah Winfrey, you know? So if Oprah Winfrey is in, you're good. <laughs> I actually did get a little bit of, of it. I don't have a lot of money for this kind of thing, but I like to have a small little cute portfolio on my Fidelity account. My portfolio is actually a really cool extension of a lot of my belief systems. So I have some of the vegan EFT stock and some other things that I feel really good about. So I really like that I get to actually invest in a dairy-free future. If any company is just has mainstreamed dairy-free living, it is Oatly. It's just phenomenal to me what is happening, especially when you think about they had a, a Super Bowl ad in 2020, like just huge, massive steps that it's taking. And this is on the coattails of Beyond Meat's very successful IPO, which had stock prices spike up to 163% a couple of years ago. So it's really cool. Like This is very, very good news. Well, I, of course, have no money in it because I, I am useless at, at investing. Uh, I don't know whether that will ever change. But I do really like it. So that's good, too. <laughs> I think oat milk is my favorite milk. And Oatly might be my, though they all do kind of taste the same. I'm not going <laughs> to deny it. But but Oatly is, is one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. I don't know whether they invented oat milk, but I think they might have. And they were certainly the first one I came across. And then, and then a lot of other companies started making it, too. Mm. So good. Who knew? Who knew that you could do that with oats? <laughs> I mean, it is funny. You can milk like anything, right? Like you could probably milk this seriously. This IKEA uh, desk that I'm like IKEA IKEA desk milk is probably the next big. Invention. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a great idea. Okay, maybe not. All right. Well, so maybe you're not investing in Oatly, but you are certainly investing in the future of animal law and your most. Oh, nice segue. Nice segue. I can do that because I've had my Dunkin' Donuts coffee, so I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm alive. So anyway, you did have a recent Animal Law podcast drop, and I wanted to check in with you about it because I know that you've been pretty excited about it. Yeah, no, this is a little a bit of a change of pace for the Animal Law podcast. I mean, not totally. Usually what I do is I interview a lawyer who is actually litigating a current case. But this time I interviewed Karen Bradshaw, and she is not a litigator. She is, in fact, a professor, and she teaches at Ari the law school at Arizona State University. And she wrote this book, which I might have mentioned before, I'm not sure. It's called Wildlife as Property Owners. It's, it's getting quite a bit of play in the animal law world. And it, it just comes from a completely different direction. I love it when somebody does sing that just kind of opens your brain in a new, a new direction. And she has expertise in property law and estates and trust law. And, you know, obviously that has a little to do with animals because people set up pet trusts or whatever, but I never thought of ha having a lot to do with animals, but she is theorizing that because we are, you know, biodiversity is crashing around us. So this is probably the great, she, she characterizes it, I think, as a problem even greater than climate change, though, of course, they are kind of completely related to each other. But, you know, we, we can't live without all of the other animals on the planet. And so she has this, this idea, which she lays out in this book, of ways that individuals can maybe put their money into trusts and, and actually the beneficiaries of the trust, really the owners of the trust would be animals. You know, just a classic trust and it would have a trustee who would have to run the, the trust and care for the land to the benefit of the animals. All right, I'm not gonna, I can't get into any more detail. You'll have to listen to the episode because it's very cool. She's a really interesting person and she has a lot of interesting ideas. And as I said, I just love a new idea. Mm -hmm. She says that, she doesn't see this kind of uh, animals as property owners as an alternative to uh, animal rights theory. She sees it as a yes and. It's, an, it's another way that we can move legally to benefit animals. And it's very cool. I hope people check it out. The Animal Law Podcast goes up the last Wednesday of every month and you can subscribe to it in a separate feed. And I hope that you uh, also follow us on all of the social medias at Our Hen House because we will always announce the, the newest episode. That sounds great, Marianne. I'm really excited to hear it. And I'm also excited to hear your chat with our guest today, Dr. Tyson Lord Gray. 
because this is a man who wears many hats. He is currently a research associate at the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty, and he is an adjunct professor at NYU Stern Business School. He is also a lawyer and previously worked at Richmond Law Group, where he focused on holding industries accountable to environmental regulations and protecting consumers from greenwashing via false advertising and deceptive food labeling. As if that weren't enough, he holds a master's in divinity from Morehouse School of Religion and preaches within the Baptist tradition. A passionate vegan who serves on the board of Mercy for Animals and greened the church, His research lies at the intersections of environmental ethics, critical race theory, and public policy. Dr. Tyson Lori Gray will be joining Marianne right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, TL. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today. I'm thrilled to have you because one of the reasons is that you are that very rare person who you have very deep roots in environmentalism and have focused on that a lot, but you also seem to just get it about the worth of individual animals, which too often people in the environmental world Kind of, they, they understand the implications of factory farming, the environmental implications, but they don't have that perspective. Do you agree with me that this is a little bit rare in that movement? And how do you explain it? I'm going to ask you to explain a lot of things today. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think that um, oftentimes the work in animal rights and food justice and environmental rights is siloed, right? So you have these individual communities kind of working in these spaces on their issues and rarely seeing the interconnection between the three and the four. And so I think one of the benefits I have is being not only a ethicist, but also being an attorney, being a minister, being an activist. And so it allows me to be situated in multiple spaces and see these connections sometimes a bit more clearly. Yeah, you really do wear a lot of hats, as I was saying. And so among them is the fact that you are a minister. And I kind of like to start off with that a little bit and how it affects all of these other issues. Can you tell us a little bit first, just a little introductory piece about the tradition that you come from and and maybe some of its attitudes towards animals? Sure. I think, um, you know, it's great if you want to start there because that's actually where my journey started. So I was licensed and ordained in ministry back in 96. So I've been preaching for over 20 years now, National Baptist Convention, and really saw myself in the lineage of Dr. King and the Ralph David Abernathy's and individuals who were um, at the intersection of faith, but also social justice and political activism. And so really wanted to like have impact in the real world. And I think it was the connection with social justice and environmental justice that really allowed me to then not only see environmental issues as environmental issues, but also issues that affect minority communities, issues that affect the health of minority populations. I'm looking at the ways in which animals were impacted by animal agriculture. And so I think that, you know, for me, this really all comes down to a moral ethical argument, which I remember Al Gore in his 2007 Inconvenient Truth said, you know, climate change is an ethical issue. It's a moral issue. And I completely agree with that. And that is really what has fueled my passion in this area for the last 20 years now. I mean, this is like my favorite topic in the world. So I think it's obvious to a lot of people listening to this podcast that these issues are all interconnected and all important ethical issues, but it's sure not obvious to everyone. And let's go back a little bit to your tradition, because I always find fascinating that I think, and maybe you will convince me otherwise, that attitudes towards animals and our duties to them are just, no matter what religion or tradition you are in, we just don't find resonance for, for the deep feelings that we have about them. Do you fi- Have you found that to be true? Do you find it to be shifting? And why? Why is it? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so I, I definitely think that there is a disconnect, and I can really only speak from the African-American tradition because that's, that's where I'm, I'm situated at. 
And I think that oftentimes, specifically when we look at African-American communities, it's because we are bombarded with so many issues and so many injustices that oftentimes animal rights just kind of falls to the bottom of the list, right? We're thinking about criminal justice reform. We're looking at prison incarceration. We're looking at high rates of, you know, education, um, lack of education in, in communities. And so oftentimes, you know, you don't have African-American churches, African-American communities as vocal about animal rights issues simply because we're actually fighting for our own lives, right? We're talking about Black Lives Matter and we're talking about issues that are relevant to human lives still. But I definitely think that there is that undercurrent there. I'm I'm actually on the board of an organization called Green the Church. It's housed out in um, Oakland, California, Reverend Ambrose Carroll. And the mission is to get churches involved in environmental justice, food injustice issues, um, issues around um, sustainability and weatherizing buildings. And so it is an initiative that is connecting environmental issues, animal rights issues to social justice issues within black communities. Oh, I I love to hear that. Sadly, I mean, that's obviously true that black churches and black communities have a lot going on. And the harder people's individual lives are, you know, the the more they have to focus on those issues. But it's certainly not just true of black churches. It's true of everybody. So, uh, so it, it's hard to believe that Jesus, if, if belief in Jesus is part of one's tradition, would mm-hmm. be okay with what we're doing. How, like, it makes no sense. This could not possibly be true, that there is a God who created these animals so we could do this to them. How, do people just, like everybody else, just refuse to think about this issue? Yeah, I think that is really what it comes down to. I'm often reminded of a book by Carol J. Adams. It's called The Sexual Politics of Meat. And in that book, she uses this term called the absent referent. And essentially, she talks about the ways in which we look at meat, not as the dead carcass of an animal, which is what it is, but we look at it as chicken nuggets. We look at it as sausage links. We we give it these different names. And so that way, we're not really thinking of, you know, this piece of, you know, sirloin as, you know, dead carcass, right? And it's that ability to separate the torture, the inhumane treatment, the slaughter of animals from that hamburger that shows up on your plate. And I think when you're able to do that successfully, as we know that marketing campaigns and huge, you know, companies that produce meat have been able to do, then you end up with a population that is able to justify the treatment of animals in in factory farms that is just completely inhumane. And I, I don't think most people would be okay with if they actually were to see it visibly, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to keep asking you the same question focusing on the same issue, but it really just does astound me that churches in particular, who really are there to guide people Mm -hmm. for ethical behavior, have that same discontent. You know, so many people in the church, people who are otherwise incredibly wonderful human beings. That's what makes me so crazy. But it does happen. But you seem to be really putting yourself in the position of and being very good at being a bridge builder, finding, you know, still working with those people who don't yet get it about maybe environmentalism, maybe about animals, and working within churches where people are focused on other social justice issues, but haven't awakened to this one yet. Like, basically, how do you do it? How, how do you not lose your temper? How do you, <laughs> how do you keep talking to people, even though, you know, things that you care about so deeply, you know, just aren't resonating with them? Right. I think at the core, it's really understanding that Churches, religions, you know, whether it's a mosque or a temple, individuals have a way of prioritizing the issues that they think are important and oftentimes having a blind spot to others. And so, you know, I don't approach pastors or, you know, leaders of other faiths with any additional expectation than I would anyone else in the population. And that's because I realized the ways in which religion has been used to fuel wars the ways in which religion has been used to ostracize individuals of same-sex orientations, the way religion has been used to keep women in a lesser position than men. And so I realized that even within religion, there's a lot of issues, a lot of work that has to be done. And I think oftentimes it's just being able to resonate with individuals who legitimately want to do the right thing and then being able to communicate them the reason that this is you know, a moral issue, right? The reason that the treatment of animals in factory farms, the reason that animals being abused and being, you know, subjected to suffering is problematic for our own 
moral and ethical conscious. And when people are able to see that, I think that oftentimes they get on board. But we also have to fight against a societal social construct that has normalized meat eating. It has normalized, you know, animals in zoos. It has normalized um, animals as pets and vivisection and scientific research. There's an entire documentary called Earthling. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. But you know, it, I, I, I am very familiar with it. I've never managed to get through it. It's a difficult I, I, I'm one to watch. I'm ashamed to admit, but uh, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. And I do know it's responsible for a lot of people just suddenly having that wake-up call. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think what's great about that documentary is it goes through and it shows the way in which we utilize animals as pets, the way we use them as clothing, the way we use them as food. And it just paints this picture of the way in which, you know, speciesism, right, the idea that humans are more important than other species, mirrors racism, mirrors sexism. And I think it's when people are able to make those connections that we actually see then um, the changes that, that are necessary to move society forward. I know that we're dealing with the religion side of your multifaceted career, but, and I know that you do do some preaching. Do you ever preach about this issue to people who aren't on board yet? And what kind of reaction do you get? Absolutely. I'm, I'm often preaching a lot during April because that's Earth Month and I get a lot of invitations. And so I always connect our reverence for God and our reverence for our faith back to the fact that God has created right? The earth, God created all things. And how do we then love and respect and, and have reverence for a higher being and yet pollute oceans, pollute the atmosphere, harm beautiful animals, right? There's all of this diversity within the species. And how do we justify then the torture of these different species and the eradication of many, right? We think about endangered species because of carbon that we put out into the atmosphere and how it's changing the climate in so many places. And so I think all of that is connected to our faith. Yeah. And what kind of reaction do you get? Do you ever really go there about, you know, maybe you should think about what you're eating? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And typically afterwards, you know, I have people come up to me and they're like, you know, I never really thought about that. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Like this is, this is, you know, here in the, in the text, right. I never thought about it. And, and I point out, you know, that there are prophets who lived off of vegan diets, right? Agrarian diets. I mean, you know, so so I'll explicitly say, you know, you realize we don't have to eat meat to survive, right? Like we could survive healthy off of a plant-based diet, right? This is the way God created our our actual human bodies, that we don't have to eat meat. And so, you know, when people hear that, they're like, oh, I never really thought about that. And then what I find specifically, again, within African-American churches, within African-American communities, is they say, you know what? this is probably the reason why I have, you know, diabetes. This is probably why I have high blood pressure, right? If I were to go vegan, I probably would lose some weight, right? Like obesity is connected to our diets, right? Realizing that, you know, a lot of the health issues that our community faces are as a result of a unhealthy, non-nutritious diet, which also connects then to other social systemic issues within minority communities when it comes to food justice and individuals living in food deserts, right? Not having access to fresh fruits, fresh vegetables. So getting their food from local bodegas and, and getting things that are, you know, not healthy, don't have the same nutritional rate. So you have communities where you have high obesity, but you have low nutrition because the food that you're eating is just not healthy. So you're gaining weight because you're eating a lot of sugar. You're eating a lot of um, processed foods, but you're actually not um, getting healthy as a result. So a lot of these issues, like I said, it's the intersectionality of the issues that when, when people start to see that, they say, oh, wow, this I see now, you know, how my diet could actually affect other issues in my life. Yeah. And actually, I think that as we've seen black veganism, which is kind of a movement in and of itself, absolutely, is probably the most vibrant force within veganism right now. It's where a lot is going on, but it is mostly health related. And that's great. It's great for people that they should be healthier. And it's great for animals that for, I'm sure they prefer not to be eaten regardless of the reason. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess, uh, you know, one can't help but hope that also as people, as it becomes a more mature movement and has such vibrancy, that people will start to see those interconnections of, it's not just for me, it's for the planet. And it's not just for the planet, it's for every one of these luscious, beautiful little animals. And uh, do you see that happening? Do you expect it to happen? And how are, you, how are you promoting that happening? So at this point, and I think it is early in terms of seeing Black veganism become a thing, so to speak, 
And there are previous, you know, historically, right, we know that the um, Nation of Islam was, you know, was vegan and, and they have always not eaten pork and things like that. So there are um, within, you know, Black history communities and spaces where veganism was a thing. Um, I think that currently when we look at what's happening, the focus really is more so on health, right? And I think it has to do with, you know, just prioritizing, right? So oftentimes I sit on the board for Mercy for Animals and it's an organization where we advocate for, you know, less cruelty to animals. Obviously, we're trying to um, change our food system to a plant-based food system. But oftentimes when we're having conversations about how do we target new demographics, how do we broach this conversation, um, one of the things I say is you have to meet people where they are, right? You have to meet people with the issues that matter to them. And I think that one of the best ways to really um, address this in minority communities right now is to focus on the health issue. I don't think it's really advantageous to argue. It's almost dangerous, I would say, to argue for the rights of animal lives when we're in the era of Black Lives Matter, where most you know, African-Americans are thinking, well, what about our lives, right? The fact that we can't walk down the street safe, right? The fact that we're having to worry about flashing lights behind us if we're driving because we don't know who we're going to encounter and what that encounter is going to look like or end up like. And so I think that when you're dealing with a situation where there's such systemic racism and there's such heightened conversation around Black lives, to argue, you know, animal lives matter is really to almost come across as being out of touch, Right. But when you put that within the conversation of, you know, Black Lives Matter, absolutely. But Black Lives Matter also is affected by poor health, poor nutrition, poor education, prison incarceration. All of these things are part of Black Lives Matter. And so how do we then broaden that conversation and also think about diet, also think about nutrition, also think about animal rights within the context of Black Lives Matter. And I think that that's the inroad for that conversation with African-American communities. And at the end of the day, I'm a pragmatist philosophically. So the goal is always the same, but whatever path or vehicle that it takes to get there, I think that that's the win. Right. I I always like to say, if you can just get the meat out of people's ears Mm -hmm. (laughs) and out of their lives, then they can hear you when you talk about animals. Because, I I mean, I hear what you're saying about, you know, you don't want to be, especially as a white person, (laughs) You don't want to be preaching to people who have those kinds of problems and yeah. social problems. But at the same time, loads of black people care about animals a lot. And we don't want to we don't want to discount yeah. the fact that everybody's capable of caring about animals and, and, right. and under underestimate what people are capable of having compassion for. And, you know, of course, everyone is because most people. Most people do care about animals. They just do such bad things to them. So let's talk a little bit more about the food issue because food security is obviously a hugely important issue for you. You've done a lot of work within that space. And and so for you, what are the connections between food insecurity and veganism? And I kind of like to deal with this both on a local view and a global view, but let's start a little bit with local. What are the barriers? I mean, let's say there is that person out there who really wants to do the right thing about animals, who is living a very tough life, uh, mm-hmm. has a couple of jobs and uh, lives in a neighborhood where there's not much food available. I'm, I'm, now I'm listing all the barriers. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you that. <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely on point, right? You know, there are access barriers, right? I mean, in terms of not only availability, right? So being able to find these options, whether they're plant-based um, food options or whether they're economic barriers. Right. Like, can they then afford these other options in terms of what's available? I do think that we're seeing a turn now where we're seeing a much more um, acceptance of veganism. So you're, you're seeing places like Burger King come out with, you know, the Bear Burger Whopper. Right. And you're seeing, you know, these restaurants that are making vegan options available, which I think is amazing because it's normalizing the fact that you don't have to you know, eat meat, right? You can, you can do a vegan option. But I do think that in terms of, you know, eating at home and, and shopping, you know, I have the benefit of, you know, being in a city where I can, you know, access a lot of plant-based material. So I have, you know, plant-based meatballs. I have plant-based, you know, chicken nuggets. I have plant-based, you know, everything is plant-based, right? And, and, and I don't have a problem, you know, having these items delivered to my home via Instacart. And, you know, so for me, it's accessible. But there are many communities that, you know, they don't have Instacart, right? They don't have a local Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. And where they do go and shop, they don't have plant-based options, right? They're having, you know, they've got the typical chicken. They've got the typical 
you know, hamburgers, these, these mass produced items from Purdue and from Tyson's. And so I think that accessibility is, is a real concern when it comes to food justice, when it comes to veganism, right? They're, they're, it's two sides of the same, the same coin when you really think about it. Yeah, well, and I think that leads to, you know, because people will, will come up with arguments as to why being vegan is difficult. And there are many arguments as to why to be, being vegan is very difficult for some people. And yeah. this leads to the arguments that veganism is elitist. Mm. You know, we had somebody on, this woman, Chef Cola, and she does all this work in Zimbabwe. And she was making the point that uh, vegan, she started out being vegan in a very elitist place. She was a, working at a restaurant in Cape Town and, okay. you know, a very high-end restaurant. Right, right. And then she started moving towards um, doing much more community-based work. And she makes the argument that veganism is, is the traditional, I mean, except not complete veganism maybe, but vegan foods are the vast majority of the traditional foods mm -hmm. um, that everybody in Africa eats that are the inexpensive foods that people can afford. So how do we, how do we combine? These are kind of two different traditions of, of veganism. And I think they exist uh, here too, except that here, maybe meat-based foods like, you know, Whoppers or whatever have become more the, the basic foods. Right, so how right. do we that and get people back to the healthy foods that are in everybody's tradition and that we all should be eating, particularly African-Americans, I think, because of health issues. The health issues are more dire. Mm -hmm. So is cooking the barrier? People have very busy lives. Uh, <laughs> do we have to make it easier to make these foods? Well, I think I, it has a lot to do, I think, with our food system here in the U.S. So I've traveled extensively through Africa. I've been to probably 20 African countries. And, you know, there are still very much agrarian based economies where they are eating a, you know, majority plant based diet. That's not abnormal when you're, you know, in in African countries. I mean, even, you know, places like, you know, China, where they're eating like a lot of rice, right? They produce a lot of meat, but a lot of that is also exports, right? But like in terms of their staple diet, Indian, is a, you know, Indian culture is a very vegetarian totally. friendly diet, right? But in the U.S., we not only prioritize meat, where individuals in the U.S. eat more meat than anyone else in the, in the world, really. I mean, we eat meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We don't think about a meal without meat being a part of it, right? So breakfast is sausage, it's bacon, it's ham. Our, you know, our lunch is, you know, hamburgers, it's pork chops. Our dinners is going, so everything is meat, meat, How often meat. have you gone into a restaurant, like a, just a diner or something, and there's not, there's this huge menu, not one single no. thing that you can right. eat? I'm, literally, I'm ordering food and taking stuff off, right? I'm like, well, can I get that without right. the meat, without, without the, the prosciutto, without, <laughs> right, right. So I've got to create now a vegan option on your menu. And it's really unfortunate because when we think about, right, I, I don't know the exact statistic, but if all of the grain that was produced to feed the animal agriculture to produce beef and, and pork, and these items, if that grain was actually consumed by humans, then we would solve the world's issue with, with hunger. Because there's enough grain, whether it's rice, whether it's corn, whether it's, you know, other staple items, there's enough grain for everyone to eat and to be full and to have a, a healthy diet than, than there is to continue to put into animal ag, which takes up exorbitant amounts of land, exorbitant amounts of water, right? Animal agriculture is the largest contributor to climate change. Um, when you look at agricultural runoff, when you look at the methane that goes into the atmosphere, meth oftentimes we talk about carbon dioxide, I mean, talk about carbon in the atmosphere. The reality is methane is the second most potent gas in the atmosphere. It's the third largest in terms of, you know, volume, but in terms of its potency, it stays in the atmosphere 12 times longer than carbon dioxide and it's stronger it's a strong it's a, it's a more harmful gas and so if, we're, if we were able to reverse the course of our animal agriculture and the, the methane that comes from the lagoons where they keep the animal waste right and oftentimes that then is sprayed out over the land as fertilizer Right. Usually in over very poor communities, which is where they put these places. Absolutely. So then you end up with water contamination issues for these communities. You end up with air quality issues in these communities. 
And so that alone, <laughs> right, is a space where you could, one, increase the amount of food that is available to Americans and, and really across the world when you think about it, and also minimize climate change impacts. And that's something that could be done, you know, within, within the next year or two. But, you know, we don't have policies being advanced that are going to really change the animal agriculture industry because of the amount of lobbying and money that goes into keeping yeah. that industry the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Instead, we have arguments from the industry saying that we're elitist mm -hmm. and they're the ones who are going to feed the world. And so if the world went vegan tomorrow, would everything be better? Is there any is there any reason not to do that except that we would have to figure out what to do with all those animals? We'd have to figure out what to do with animals, absolutely. Um, but if we know. all went vegan together, we'd figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is true, you know, and I'm and I'm I'm a fan of animal liberation, so you know I say let them live out the remainder of their days, and you know the ones that we have in factory farms, um, you know we've really created issues that don't exist, right? They're not they're not occurring naturally in nature and and procreating naturally. They're being, you know, raped and rape kits and, and things of that sort, which, you know, when you get into the, the legal terrain of that, it's just really horrible. The fact that we have no laws that protect animals within animal agriculture. And yet, if you were to walk down the street and kick your dog, right, someone could file a charge on you and you would, you know, you'd really be subjected to some type of, of legal effect because there are laws that protect companion animals, whereas there are none that protect animal agriculture. Yeah. And the laws that protect companion animals are bad enough. And uh, yeah, this is the disconnect that, you know, I keep coming back to that. I think it's, you know, I'm going to reverse the question a little bit because I was asking you one before, like the, about the emotions and the feelings of people who we need to reach. But I'm going to ask you a little bit about our emotions and our, you know, I get into deep funk sometimes. And I think everybody who does this does like what is wrong with people you know and and why all of this cruelty and horror and horror beyond our, our ability to imagine and once you know about it it affects you deeply so yeah. as a preacher mm -hmm. how do you counsel us about how to deal with that hostility and how and frequently it's in your own family people just yeah don't get it. People who you love, people who, who are very important to you, or people who you admire out in the world and you want to like really rely on them, but about this one huge thing, they don't get it. How would you counsel us to, to deal with those emotions without having hatred? Oh, that's a difficult one. It sure <laughs> uh, is. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. I mean, you know, and, and the reality is there are no, you know, there are no simple answers to these to these issues. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's equivalent to PTSD, right? It's like this, this trauma that you experience and, and oftentimes experience repeatedly. And, and it becomes, you know, I equate it to feeling as if you're living in a twilight zone, right? Where one thing is normal, but like everyone else says, this is normal. And you're just like, this makes no sense, right? How are you justifying this? How are you how does this not, or how does this appear logical to you when it's so illogical to me, right? And I think it's really just, you know, it's a matter of having that grounding element, that grounding component, whatever it is for you, whether it's faith, whether it's, you know, some quote or some philosophical idea that you're able to return to that just kind of centers you and, and gives you strength. And so oftentimes, you know, the work that I do is, is really fueled by my calling in ministry is fueled by, you know, two quotes that really frame all of my work. And that is Gandhi, be the change you want to see in the world. And Dr. King and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so I often find myself trying to mirror those two quotes between aligning myself with my values and being the change and being an example, but then also fighting against injustice because I realize that to allow any injustice is to perpetuate all injustice. And so it's really like having those framing ideas and just kind of returning to those and recharging in whatever way you're able to recharge, right? Whether that's through meditation, whether that's through travel. I do a lot of travel as well. I've been to 80 countries. And so I find solace in being able to escape some of the issues that, that I think are not as prevalent in other spaces. So oftentimes it's good to just get away and to and to be in a country like Iceland where it's not as industrialized and you're able to 
to drive and see rolling mountains and see nature and to see nature to see animals in their natural habitat. Um, I was in Namibia for three months last year. And one of the most amazing things about being in Namibia was I traveled throughout the entire country. I drove from the north to the south, to the east to the west. And Namibia actually has, I want to say, maybe the third or the fourth largest population of wild animals. They really invest in um, preserving their wildlife, but they do not have zoos. They have no national parks. The animals run free. So you could be riding down the road and literally you would look to your left and you just see like a herd of maybe eight to 12 giraffes right there off the highway. Same thing with, you know, elephants. I had an ostrich run, you know, a pair of ostrich run in front of my car. So, you know, I stopped and did a quick video, but I mean, they're huge, right? These huge, amazing, um, you know, animals and species. And you see wild horses and you see just nature in its habitat. And, and, and so to me, that's just so encouraging and such a recharge to then come back and to be able to teach in this space and to be able to practice law in this space and to be able to engage activism and to influence nonprofits who are doing this work. And so I think it's really just kind of remaining grounded and not allowing what has become the norm to then, you know, somehow make you think that you're the one that's crazy for, for not accepting it. Yeah, it- Maybe I'll go to Namibia because <laughs> 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 it, it's pretty tough. And I do think one of the things that's been missing recently is, which doesn't really get you away from the issues, but the conferences and the get-togethers mm-hmm. where animal advocates join together. And you may not learn anything. You may know all of this stuff already. You may be right. a pro, but it's nice to be in a place where everybody gets it. Speaking of places where everybody gets it, you mentioned that you recently joined the Board of Mercy for Animals. What are you, I mean, we're very familiar, of course, with their work, but I'm curious to know, what would you like to accomplish there? So part of um, part of the reason why they brought me on, I believe anyway, and part of what I pitched as, as what I felt like I would be able to offer was the diverse perspective. Typically, the animal rights movement has not been very religious, And typically, the animal rights movement has not been very Black. (laughs) And so being able to offer those two additional perspectives in terms of, you know, how are African-American minority communities thinking about these issues and what's the best way to, you know, communicate this message to them? And then also, you know, where are the religious communities' voice in this, right? Where are the pastors who are preaching messages about these issues, right? And so part of what I want to see in my my tenure there is, you know, more outreach and effort in those spaces and really being able to broaden the movement because, you know, it can't just be certain individuals, you know, that that care about these issues. It has to be everyone understanding the impact of our actions. And, you know, every time I, you know, walk down an aisle and pass up, you know, the meat product for the plant-based product, right? I realize my impact is insignificant unless this becomes a movement, right? Same thing with eggs, right? I, I, I can't, you know, say how many times I've looked and I've seen eggs that are just, you know, the regular eggs. And then I see the cage-free and then I see the farm-raised eggs. And I see all of these variations. And I think to myself, are people really like making these distinctions when the price point is so large, right? You can get a regular carton of eggs at 99 cents. And the cage-free eggs or the free-range eggs are like $4 and $5. And I'm thinking, you know, is this really making an impact? I get the marketing. And, you know, part of what I did within law was looking at the ways in which companies engage in greenwashing, right? So the ways in which a company will say our eggs are free-range when the reality is they're in a small, confined space on top of each other and not in any better condition than the eggs that are in the cages or the chickens that are in the cages. And so and so a lot of that I think is really just going to be a change in understanding and knowledge, but then also a larger movement, more people coming on board and saying, this is unacceptable, this practice is unacceptable, and basically moving towards a plant-based diet where where that becomes the majority. And once the consumer makes that demand, right, I think we'll see more companies than get on board, right? But as long as we have individuals purchasing the items that are cheaper, purchasing the items that are more accessible and not demanding um, different items, different quality, different merchandise, then 
it's going to be really difficult to, to, to have the impact that we, that we need. Yeah, those are really important focuses. I'll come back for a moment again to the religion. I love that that's one of your goals at, at Mercy for Animals, because I think you're right. A lot of people in the movement or in the movement, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making air quotes, even though none right. of you can hear, can see me. I see um, yeah, are, are not religious. And, you know, I'm not religious myself. And that's that's all good, but it does really limit your ability to reach out to faith communities when you don't share that perspective. And I do think that's one of the, it's one of the huge challenges, as I made clear before, that we have to reach these people who are in the business of ethical behavior. I mean, (laughs) like, like, come on, if we can't, if we can't get those people on board, what are we doing? I, I, I love that you're going to be focusing on that. I think it's a hugely important area. And I, I'm curious to know, I, I alluded to it before, talking about that we all need to get back to conferences and seeing each other, but I'm wondering what other lessons you have learned from this past year of, of crazy weirdness. Has it affected the way you approach your activism at all? Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely hindered a lot of ways that I would have typically going about activism, you know, not having that in-person ability, right, has, has, has really been, I think, difficult. But at the same time, I think that it has, it has shown the ability to connect, you know, virtually, I think, specifically being an academic, right? So having my classes move virtual and having these conversations, you know, on cam and being able to talk to people regardless of where they were, it has allowed me to bring in speakers that perhaps would not have been able to make it to New York and come to NYU in a classroom, but they've been able to log in and they've been able to speak on these platforms to students. And so I think that there have been some wins, but it's also been difficult in terms of actually being on the ground and talking to people one-on-one and actually having those uh, in-person conversations, which I do think at the end of the day matter. I think they make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hopefully we will take some of the lessons we learned and incorporate them, but also actually talk to people again. <laughs> in yeah, person, yeah. It would be nice. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more. Uh, well, does your, your, you teach at the Stern Business School at NYU, is that right? That is correct. I'm not actually aware of what you teach, and it might have nothing to do with anything we're talking about, So, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. It absolutely has something to do with what we're talking about. So I teach in the business and society area at Stern, and essentially... Uh, my course looks at the ways in which students are able to develop into ethical, moral business leaders and how do they then enter into a business world and not just have the traditional view of business that is all about you know, stakeholders and who are my investors and how do I make profit for my investors, but actually looking at business as a extension of society and as a has a responsibility to the communities in which they're a part of and how do they then invest back via ESG initiatives, via CSR initiatives? How do they... Uh, I'm sorry, what are those? I'm sorry. um, So environmental um, social governance, which are basically like three arms that are looking at the ways in which corporations are being sustainable within environmentalism. Are they investing in global warming and, and, and climate change and attempting to minimize their footprint? Do they have lead certified buildings, things of that caliber? A social component is looking at their investment in animal rights and in um, Black Lives Matter and in you know, issues that arise such as COVID-19, right? Are they investing in relief? Are they attempting to help communities that are being impacted and affected? Um, and then governance, right? Which is looking at leadership, right? Do, do our leadership, does the leadership look like the traditional you know, heteronormative, you know, white male cis leadership, or is there diversity within the leadership, right? Are there individuals at the table who represent diverse communities and look more like the society, the communities that they're impacting and that they are eventually, you know, marketing themselves to. So ESG initiative really tries to look at the sustainability of a organization. And that's a holistic perspective. That's not just, are we making revenue? Are we making profit? Are the stockholders happy, right? But this is also, are we benefiting the community, right? You know, what does the charitable arm of the organization look like? And because of those initiatives, we have companies like, you know, PepsiCo, who would then have a separate arm that is able to donate to different organizations and institutions. So for instance, my position here in Texas at Baylor, I'm a part of um, BCHIP, which is the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. 
And so I'm doing research on a program they did last summer called Emergency Meals to You. So when COVID happened, all of the schools shut down, all of the students were at home. Students who normally would come to school and get two meals a day were no longer receiving those meals. Some of those students lived in extremely rural areas where they were not able to get access to those meals at all. And so BCHIP got a grant from the USDA to actually mail these meals to these students and to these families and were able to deliver them to their doorsteps. But of course, you know, that was a huge undertaking. They then had to partner with McLean Global. They partnered with PepsiCo. And so these corporations came in and, and extended additional resources and were able to donate funds. And so part of what I then teach at Stern is how are organizations stepping up and investing in, you know, being better businesses and benefiting all stakeholders and understanding that the stakeholders are also the community, the environment, animals, right? So if your business is making profit, but you're polluting rivers and streams and killing fish and causing leukemia in, in children downstream, then your business is not sustainable. There are those who 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 say, all right, we're never going to make progress unless we get rid of capitalism. It's just mm-hmm. a, a defective system and it'll just be greenwashing or humane washing, as you were mentioning before. Right. And right. then there are those who believe we can make enormous changes within the system that we've got. I'm guessing you are the second, but maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Tell me if I'm wrong. Okay, so yes, I'm I'm a bit of a pragmatist, so I'm a little bit of both and. And um, and, and you probably know that even within animal rights, there's, you know, the the two, you know, different camps, right? There's the animal rights that wants to argue for better treatment of animals in CAFOs and factory farms. And then there's animal liberation, which is the complete, you know, liberation of all animals from any type of harm at all. And so I think when we talk about, you know, can we have progress within capitalism? I think absolutely, right? I think that there are things that can be done to um, improve our treatment of the environment, that can improve our treatment of animals. And specifically, we there is evidence that companies that engage in better practices actually do better on the bottom line, right? So people want to support companies that they believe are socially and morally ethical, Right. But I do think that our end goal has to be a society that moves away from the capitalist structure that really is, you know, this hierarchy where, you know, only a few are going to make it to the top, only a few are going to be successful and everyone else is going to essentially be, you know, workers and, and prop up those at the top. And so I think that that, that model is, is problematic. I don't think it's sustainable. And, and I would like to see progress towards a more holistic model. But in the interim, I think part of what we have to do is we have to fight for the now. We have to fight for the alleviation of animal suffering now. We have to fight for, you know, more stringent standards as it pertains to environmental laws and regulations and animal rights now with the end goal and the vision of of something better in the future. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I really like that analogy to uh, animal rights theory and ways of proceeding that that you're both and approach. And uh, I could keep talking to you forever, but you probably have other things to do. <laughs> and uh, it's really been fascinating to you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today on our Hen House. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I definitely appreciate it. And um, and then just before I go, remind your listeners that Mercy for Animals do have our annual gala that is coming up. And if they would like to participate, they can go to mercyforanimals.org and there's spots on there to buy a ticket. It's a virtual gala, but anything they're able to contribute would definitely help our cause in fighting for the rights of animals. You are a very good board member, and I'm sure a lot of people will follow up with that. It's so much easier going to a virtual gala and cheaper, too. (laughs) You don't have to buy a new dress. This is true. Thank you. Thank you for reminding us about that. And yeah, I'm sure many of our listeners are, are we'll, we'll see you there. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can 
follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story today is from one of my favorite commentators. That's Amanda Radke, who writes the Beef Daily column for Beef Magazine. The future of meat is maggots. Okay, (laughs) that's the title. Certainly roused my curiosity. Fake meat companies continue their crusade to strip cattle off the land and beef off the plate. Will they use maggots, crickets, and kelp to do it? Uh, You know, maybe, I don't know, but that's not what they're using right now. When someone tells you who they are, believe them, says Amanda. I think that's a good idea. Fake meat companies want to strip cattle off the land and beef off the plate. Uh, Yeah. Then she has a quote from Impossible Food. She has a quote from Beyond Meat. the, The gist of both is that, yeah, the best thing to do is to, as uh, Impossible Food says, ditch meat from animals. Beyond Meat asks, what if we took this cow off the table and just made friends with her? Don't you love that line? Then she returns to their usual mantra. Well, consumer choice is great. They always like to give a salute to the fact that they're not trying to ban these products because they're so afraid that, that they'll get banned. But the problem is for her is the falsehoods, emotionally charged rhetoric, and flat out lies. Then she she cites to a whole bunch of stories from news sources. One's from Veg News, like another is 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 from Veg Economist. That's who she follows. And you know, they talk about like Modern Meadow closes $130 million Series C funding, or Billion Bio versus five million, blah, 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 blah. Then she just goes right into uh, an article from the India Times saying, studies suggest that humans may have to eat maggots and insects in the future to fight off malnutrition. Help maggots and mycoproteins must be mass farmed to combat malnutrition from Horta Daily and et cetera, et cetera. She's just conflating these two things and then announcing to everybody that quote unquote fake meat is made out of uh, insects, which I'm not saying people aren't doing these things, but it ain't what Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are in the business of doing. But, you know, it does make for such a better article. She goes on to give her her bullshit about it because the truth of the matter is beef is healthy for humans and the planet too. Like the health one is bad enough, but the, the environmental one is just getting so ridiculous. Cattle play a role in environmental stewardship. I mean, the, like opinions outside the beef industry are pretty much universal that cattle are a disaster for the environment. Some people care, some people don't, but... Uh, Apparently, cattle minimize the spread of wildfires. They protect wildlife habitat. Oh, that's a good one. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just, you know, going back to her theme, in this new fake meat push, I'm seeing that there are some who believe the future of protein, once they get rid of cattle, of course, includes eating maggots, cicadas, and crickets. Read that again. They want us eating maggots, cicadas, and crickets. All right, other people who aren't calm... This is the Center for Consumer Freedom. Here's an article from them. Chicken, the new slur. Now they're going, this is, you know, one of these silly things where they're going on about PETA. And PETA apparently, I think this was in a tweet. <laughs> like That's where they get their copy from. They look for tweets from PETA. Uh, the Radical Animal Liberation Group. Don't you like that they call it animal liberation? I love that. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. We want to liberate them. Does that actually sound bad to you? Apparently it does. Has demanded people stop using colloquialisms such as calling someone a chicken if they are acting cowardly. Why? Peter says, if you believe in equality and justice, it isn't hard to see how calling someone an animal is as an insult can further animal suffering. Well, yeah, I I, I agree. <laughs> you can imagine if you had a, a slur that referred to an ethnic group of people, that would certainly, uh, you know, that you were spreading around and using it as an insult for other people. That would certainly be a bad thing, but apparently, you know, I, I, I get it that they this is really getting into uh, deep territory for them. The idea that language actually matters is, is hard to imagine, but they think it's ridiculous. After all, it's not like chickens can understand English. Well, that kind of misses the point, doesn't it? I mean, we're not worried that the chickens' will, feelings will be hurt. We're worried about the people who torture and murder and eat the bodies of chickens. 
maybe could rethink that a little bit if they stopped using the word chicken as an insult. And PETA provides, this is one of my favorite lines, PETA provides no evidence that saying such as don't pig out actually cause any harm to animals whatsoever. Like they just always want us to prove everything we say. And they always want us to prove it 100%. Like this isn't just in this this context. And this I just find this a very common thing. You don't have to prove everything because some things aren't provable. How would they prove that? Of course, they can't prove it. They're telling you this and asking you to use your brain to think about what this might mean. But no. Peter tries to equate animals and humans. Uh, you know, this has every cliche in the book in it. They just trot them out over and over. Feigning moral outrage. Well, I can tell you for one thing, Peter is not feigning moral outrage here. They're pretty outraged and actually so am I. All right, finally, from the Chef's Table column by Michael Formicella um, over at MeetingPlace.com, the battle between animal protein versus plant-based. Now, this is an odd column. I've had some other odd columns by this guy, and he's a chef. He's the president and owner of something called Chella Foods. Uh, I looked on their Instagram. It looked completely gross. But let's face it, he can buy whatever he wants and make food out of it and sell it, apparently. Right now, it's meat, but he could still make money. And you do see, if he was using plant-based, you do see this split among among retailers and actual, you know, producers that the producers are in this business for good or ill. The retailers, they can kind of do anything they want. And at the moment, they are. And so is Michael, interestingly. People are going to hate this column. Actually, I have a little evidence that they do, which I'll share at the end. Does it seem like there is a divide between individuals that consume animal protein and the ever-increasing plant-based community. Don't you love that ever-increasing? Nice touch. Well, of course, there's a divide between plant-based community people like us and them, since we think they're they're evil. But he's really talking about how much uh, distaste there is in the animal protein biz people for us. Um, but, you know, he thinks we should, like, they should maybe lighten up. He talks about the Boca Burger and how successful it was. You know, I love I love Boca Burgers. So that was the first success. That makes sense. That sounds right. And then fast forward to 2009, Beyond Meats. And, you know, of course, they've increased ever, ever more, ever more since then and grown and gotten their food has gotten so much better. But, you know, he says that even though Ethan Brown's intentions, in a nutshell, were to end all livestock production, I'm sure you could have heard all the cattlemen around the country chuckling. Uh, no, they weren't chuckling, actually. <laughs> they weren't chuckling at all. And they're chuckling a lot less now. And he talks about impossible foods and, you know, going through the history a little and, and asks the question, who's really creating the rift between the two? Yes, they're hardcore carnivores, but there's certainly enough room for everyone to play in the sandbox. Yeah, you're the only person uh, writing for Meeting Place stuff. Who thinks that? I can assure you. You know, he talks about how everybody's getting into the biz and and uh, there's not, like it was on Shark Tank and, and the big meat companies are getting into the biz. Current data, he says, tells us unequivocally that an ever-growing number of consumers are incorporating plant-based foods into their diet because they taste good and boost their health. Speaking from my own point of view, I don't see this as a fad or replacing my grilled ribeye. So he's very light about it. His anxieties aren't rising at all because, you know, he's not stuck in that business. He can sell whatever he wants. I do love some of his comments. Uh, this is my favorite. I'm just going to read it. Truth is getting hard to find in a narcissistic environment of lies and disinformation spread by mainstream media and those who seek to profit by processing fake, alt, artificially flavored and colored, chemically glued lab slime and calling it everything but what it really is. Call it what it is with a transparent lens. Follow the money behind it and you will find the two. You will find the evil New World Order socialism agenda, the psychopathic fantasy to indoctrinate a new generation of children with the lies on all platforms that alt is equal or superior to real meat should be a crime. The manufacturing fools, including chef menus that would push disguised fake ideology, are no better than drug dealers. Yeah, so uh, so Formicella's anxieties might not be rising, but it seems like there's a few people out there reading his column that are a little upset. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, 
You can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnson of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.